0: Please open your copy of God's Word with me to Genesis chapter 23. As you're turning there, uh, it's been said a few places that in this world nothing can be certain except death and taxes. And while Benjamin Franklin is the most well-known quotation there, it was used a number of times in the 1700s, while there are certainly many more things that are certain in life than death and taxes, and of course people can choose to not pay their taxes. They cannot choose to not face the reality of death. It's like a neon sign flashing at that store that you drive by and you just don't even want to look because it's going to hurt your eyes that's like death crying out we don't want to see it but it's there it's glowing it's blinking at us right in every culture of the world death makes demands on people that that no person or program can rival it feels like in the face of it time just stops holding all things captive to its reality In Uganda, everything just shuts down. You can go out into Chuoko, our little town, and just find shops that are just chained and bolted. And you're going, why are they closed? Uh, Oh, they've gone to Bury. You come back two days later, and the same shop is chained and closed. Closed and chained. Why is it closed? Oh, someone else from the village has died. They've gone to Bury. Um, in most cultures, that's a reality. Uh, it's a big deal. That It, it shapes a whole people. Um, in fact, even in Uganda where typically at a meeting, you know, if there's a gathering, one hour late is the norm for public gathering. No one will come late to a burial. If you do, you will miss it. When it ends, people leave very quickly. Now, part of that's because they're afraid that the spirit of the person who's died will come after the last person there. But it, it's, t- it's kept, time, it, you know, it happens culturally. It's quite fascinating. You're like, why are they running away from the burial site? Um, fear, gripping. But, but the reality of death, controlling, right? Making demands, um, centering people around it. While death carries certain demands and expectations, one of the most challenging decisions is simply where to bury. In most cultures, this is a very big deal. It's not uh, something that you're flippant about. You have a, a plan in place. Families will even make demands that can separate spouses from being buried together. Among Muslims who wrestle with what it means to follow Jesus, to confess Jesus as Lord, the reality of being cut off from one's family is a very painful thought. When my friend Mehdi, who grew up a Muslim, confessed Jesus and then told his father that he wanted to be baptized, the father's response was, "Where will you be buried?" As if that's the thing. Like don't follow Jesus so that you can know where you could be buried because if you follow Jesus, you're not buried with us. Like that's a big deal. Where a person is buried is a central identity issue in most cultures. Deeply religious, deeply sacred reality. As we come into God's word together, we find Abraham in his latter years, and he's having to wrestle through burial issues. In fact, the last three chapters of Genesis that are Abraham's story will lead us through the end of his life and describe really what, what many of us face in the reality of of Growing older or facing death. And that's reality surrounding funeral arrangements. Questions about what are going to happen to our children and our grandchildren after we are no longer here. Because we wonder those things. And together over the next two weeks, we're going to see how our faithful God, our faithful God cares about all of these things. And He is intimately involved in all parts of our lives, even the difficult decisions that we are forced to face in the face of death or thoughts of the future. Because even as we seek to walk by faith in the here and the now, even as we seek to do works as an outflow of that faith, we ultimately must live according to and held by the faithfulness of God. Let's pray come into God's word together. Lord, we do stand before you as, as a needy people and what incredible truths we've sang today. Amazing. In the hope of life, the life that we have in you, we stand on every promise of your word, so many rich themes Lord, would you sink those themes that we have sang deep into our hearts as we hear your word proclaimed, as as your spirit works in our midst, as, as you meet the needs of your people this day. Lord, we present ourselves to you and pray that you would have your way and that you would wash your bride with your word and make her beautiful today for the glory of your name. Amen. So over the last few months, we've walked a journey with Abraham and Sarah. And they've kind of become dear friends. You know, you you start to feel like you really know them. In fact, maybe you even feel like you know Abraham and Sarah better than you know the person seated on the other side of the room, right? And hopefully that's not true. Hopefully that, if it is true, that's changing, okay? Hope you're involved in care group. Hope you're taking the time to pour into each other's lives, to open yourself up to one another, all right? But I've loved the journey that we've gotten to have with this couple, and boy, have we journeyed with them. We've keyed in, in the last three weeks, on the great test of Abraham's faith displayed in his unwavering obedience to God. Last week, we thought about the relationship of faith and works, the way that those things were connecting in Abraham and his heart throughout his journey, and now we come to the end of his journey, right? And just like any of us, he's got to wrestle through the reality of death and the loss of a spouse, and then what's going to happen to his son Isaac after his death, after all he doesn't have a bride yet. There's these amazing promises made. I mean, you know, what's going to happen? So as we look at really the end of his life, there's a, a large section. Okay, as we come into Genesis 23, you got to back up a little bit into chapter 22. And the, the larger section runs from verse 20 all the way uh, through the end of chapter 24, which will then lead us into Abraham's death. And so this is, this is a, a big uh, a section of narrative that are, are connected together. Okay, we're going to take it in two pieces. Chapter 22, verses 20 to 24, are going to introduce us to the family of Abraham's brother Nahor. And that includes his children with names like Uz and Buzz. If I use my Appalachian accent, Uz and Buzz. Um, it's kind of fun. Uh, and what's fun about these names is they, they actually appear in the book of Job, right? Job is from the land of Uz. And, his, and Job's friend, Elihu, is from, uh, he's a buzite, a buzite, uh, which is why when you do a chronological Bible reading, the book of Job often appears somewhere in the patriarchal time, right? Because th- there, there is a connection here, as we see uh, Job connected in to these relatives of Abraham. Our passage today is framed uh, really with an introduction and a conclusion. So we're going to frame it in chapter 23, verses 1 and 2, which are basically going to tell us that Sarah has died in Hebron in the land of Canaan. And then when we go to cha- the end of the chapter in, in verses 19 and 20, it's going to repeat it again, that ultimately Abram's going to bury Sarah, his wife, in a cave uh, in this, here in Hebron in the land of Canaan. So there's a a sandwich here. That becomes important because uh, Sarah both died and was buried in Canaan. And that forms really the central purpose of the story. How does this come about? But there's a journey from point A to point B, which seems like just a a fun story, a detailed narrative about how Abraham found a burial plot. Um, But obviously there is much more going on and we get to look at that together. And so the introduction, verses 1 and 2, sets up the story. All right, we've seen him moving around again. They're back in Hebron. They're in or near the place where they had established his home. If you remember, throughout Abraham's life, we have often found them uh, by the oaks of Mamre. Right? Lot is going into Sodom. He's in the city. He's got the walls. He has protection. And Abraham is with some trees. Um, but his protector is God. And he is, he is settled there and with his allies in the area. He will, he will go after the kings, right, as Lot is actually taken captive, as the walls fail him. And so Abraham and the oaks of Mamre, uh, he's back in that area. In fact, Mamre will be mentioned in verses 17 and verse 19. So he's back in his home space. But the introduction draws us into the heart of what the passage is going to address. We see that Sarah lived to be 100 and 27 years old. Her son Isaac, then, if we're thinking chronologically, he would have been around 37. And it's difficult to lose a parent at any age. Yet for Isaac, this would have been very, very, very difficult. He was not yet married. His mother never got to meet the woman that he he would marry. She will never get to hold her grandbabies. These are or watch them grow up, right? These are our legitimate grief points for Isaac. It would have been very difficult. It makes me wonder if Isaac ever had a why God rise up within him because his dad's going to live another almost 40 years, right? But Moses doesn't put the spotlight on Isaac at all. He's not even mentioned in the story. Not that he doesn't have a grief piece. He does, but Isaac is going to be spotlighted in the next chapter. And so it's, it's, an, it's a kind of a move of the narrative. That we're going to highlight Abraham here. Isaac's just kind of in the shadows. And we're going to spotlight Isaac in chapter 24. So the focus is on Abraham. The end of verse 1 tells us that he went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. This is very significant. There are only two characters in Genesis who are recorded as having been mourned at their death. One is Jacob in the very last chapter of Genesis and the other is Sarah. Moses just tells us plainly, Abraham mourned and wept for Sarah. In the ancient world, the word carried the idea of crying out right, as he mourned for her. As he wept for her, as he mourned, he cried out. Throughout the Old Testament usage of the word, it's, it's mourning the death of someone. We often find the phrase, alas, attached to it, connected into the mourning. And so you'll hear phrases like, this person was mourning, or they mourned, alas, my Lord, or alas, my brother, or just alas, alas. We might translate it, oh, oh no, Oh, my brother. It's an expression of shock and grief. I've been at uh, many Ugandan burials where mourning and weeping is like that. There are loud cries, alas, which express the deep pain of loss. It can actually feel deeply troubling, like a great intruder has come and we are helpless to remove its presence. We're left to hurt with the hurting. When someone dies in Uganda, people often gather overnight to be around those who have lost, to just share in the loss. They're present, they're praying, maybe they're singing softly. There's something beautiful in the community where grief is shared together. I'll never forget that day when I walked into a Chuoko hospital room Where a friend of ours had just given birth to a stillborn child so the child was born not alive the room was packed with women they were all crying you could hear it Um, mourning weeping wailing yet woman by woman they were praying they were crying out to god for comfort for the mama But they were also crying out from the comfort and the hope that each had received themselves over the years. And that was expressed in their prayer for the mama. As I'm experiencing this, it was only later that it struck me when I talked to Laura Beth that each woman in that room had lost a child at some point through miscarriage or stillborn birth. The grieving mama's pain had drawn within them the memory of their own wound and grief, right? Not as a salt in the wound. They didn't gather there just reopening a terror. It was a step further in their own healing, in their own journey of grief and loss. They could be vessels of comfort to a grieving mama as their own grief touched into that mama's grief. But as they brought comfort from the comfort that they had received from God another step along the journey of grief. Because grief isn't something that's a one and done. It's not something that's just over. It's something that is gifted to us as we remember and as we feel the pain and as we feel the terror of loss. We are meant to walk forward in the reality of our grief. This is quite different than in an American context where Mourning and and grieving is often a private affair. Often at funerals, families will gather together privately to mourn, only then to step out front and to have to greet each person in the midst of the reality that is in that casket behind me. I've heard many say that is the most difficult part of, of walking the process of death in this cultural context. It's often children in that context who feel, this is weird. Why are we just talking and greeting each other when, you know, when grandpa's died? Um, It feels strange. But it is an attempt at grieving together and and inviting others into our grief. Here, Abraham comes and publicly weeps and mourns for his beloved. We can picture him then crying out in tears, Alas, my wife! Oh, Sarah! Oh, my precious Sarah! As he mourns for his dear Sarah, his beautiful bride who has journeyed with him through his whole life and whom he will journey without for what 40 years can feel like a lifetime. But he doesn't know that. All he knows is the Lord has taken her. There's no preparation that we know of. There's no angelic Messenger, all right, that we've had in lots of stories already. It's just the sudden reality of death is before him. And he must walk that journey. I can picture Abraham sitting with Isaac around a campfire just telling stories. Your mom was an amazing woman. Can you believe she left home and wandered with me into this crazy place? And let me tell you, there was that time in Egypt. Oh man, I got us in a pickle but your mom, but God, (laughs) you know, um, let me tell you stories of God's faithfulness and the faith of your mom. She trusted God's faithfulness, especially as it related to God's promises about you, Isaac. Let me tell you those stories, right? Those are realities. And as this new reality of life is settling on Abraham, this new normal, so does the reality of the details of decisions that are foisted upon him, the mourner. There are almost no harder decisions to make than those that have to be made in the midst of shock and grief of death. And Abraham has a problem right here in his face. Where to bury Sarah? Because he is a sojourner in the land. He is an outsider who has lived as a nomad for his whole life. Where to bury? When our friend and fellow missionary Steve Brown suddenly died, it was shocking to us. Their family was faced with a crazy decision. Bury him in Uganda or take him back to England? Boy, Lord Beth and I had some discussions. What would happen if one of us died suddenly? I was like, well, just... Put me by my fruit trees near the birds where they sing, you know. But then you've got family in America, and what do you do? And what, you know, what decision? And I'm so thankful that she never had to bear that burden. Some of you have faced challenging situations, especially challenging where other grieving family members are involved. But Abraham, maybe he had it even worse because the journey back to Ur. How do you transport a body back there? But God had called him away from there. This was home. It was also the land of promise, but he didn't own even one square inch. You Think about it. What would he do? But he knew what he had to do. The story doesn't tell us, but he was decisive. He knew what he had to do. And so verse 3 launches us into really the narrative portion um, of the story. We read in chapter 23, verse 3, that Abraham rose up from before his dead and he said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. A couple of quick notes. Uh, these Hittites are, are probably southern relatives of you know, the, 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 the more well known Hittites of the north. Uh, and really, the end of the section comes with this, so that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And that's, that's a, a, a phrase in the narrative we're going to find over and over again. That I may bury my dead, bury your dead. That I may bury my dead, bury your dead. And it always sort of qualifies the end of that person speaking and then the next portion. And so we're going to find that statement. We'll see that phrase throughout the passage. And it moves us forward. And it always points us back to the reality of what he's dealing with. Over and over, it's in his face. It's in our faces. And so he comes to the Hittites and he tells them very clearly, I am just a sojourner and foreigner among you, right? That's all that I am. He puts himself uh, down at the bottom and he needs a place to bury, property among them. He's ultimately asking for a family burial plot, not just for Sarah, bigger than Sarah. It's the job of a head of a home. In, in most cultures, you have your burying place. In Uganda, it's, it's, if you die and you have no place to bury, it is a shame on your family. Right? That, that is what you do. You secure your land. You secure the, pl- the plot. And this is where our, our children, our family, will be buried. And so Abraham's asking for this, for a bigger ask than just Sarah. He's thinking bigger, but it's a big ask. Because they could easily reject the request, force him from their land if they feel threatened by him in any way. Well, we look at the response in verses 5 and 6. They're going to reveal a whole lot about Abraham and about his relationship to the people around him. The Hittites answer him, hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb or hinder you from burying your dead. Okay, right off the bat, they're addressing him, my Lord. And that's not an authoritative term. It is a a term of deep respect and of humility. And just as as Abraham has humbled himself, I'm just a sojourner among you. They're saying, no, 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 oh no, no, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. You could translate it a mighty prince or or the Greek translation of the Old Testament will actually translate it mighty king. You're a mighty king among us, a prince of God. Back in chapter 21, if you remember Abimelech, he recognized, that king recognized that God was with Abraham and all that he did. Here, the Hittites, they're quick to denote that Abraham is much more than a simple sojourner and foreigner. He is a mighty one of God among them. He's lived, he's lived among them long enough. They know the stories. Some of them had experienced even uh, his own. Uh, maybe they'd even gone with him on his journey to, to go and rescue Lot. And he's been long enough that they know that he is worthy of their respect and their response demonstrates this, bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. I mean, this is like a king saying up to half my kingdom, right? Because that's a big deal. The choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. I wonder whoever said that, were other people like, hey, is he talking for me? I mean, you know, but, but it's set. none of us will hinder you. Bury your dead. And so this back and forth has officially begun. Abraham's response, look at this in verse seven. He rises and rather than exalt himself, he does the opposite. They've exalted him and what does he do? He comes back down low. He bows before them in verse seven. He bows before the Hittites. And Imagine bowing before the Hittites. Uh, There's an irony here. It doesn't just say the Hittites. There's something that's added on. What does it say? The people of the land. Don't miss it. The irony being drawn out for us now should be clear. This is a little bit of an awkward situation for those who are actually reading and know the story because Abraham has received God's promise that the land that the Hittites are on is actually land promised to who? To Abraham. It's for him and his offspring. The Hittites are specifically named as those whose land has been promised to Abraham. And here he is humbling himself before the people who appear to own the land that have to grant him permission to bury. And he does it displaying deep gratitude and deep humility. Again, revealing the heart of Abraham. But he also knows that what comes next is the most important part of these negotiations. And so in verse eight, Abraham says to them, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, okay, that's very important, um, hear me and entreat for me Ephron the son of Zohar. Okay, right away we're like, yes, Abraham had a plan. He had something in mind even as he came to them. And what are they to entreat Ephron for in verse 9? That he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It's at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. So right away Abraham is making it really clear. I'm going to purchase, okay? I'm going to name. You've said that you won't withhold. I'm going to name it, and I want you to know I'm going to pay for it, for a burying place. Well, Ephron is now going to speak up. In Verse 10, he's sitting among the Hittites, and of course Abraham knew. And Ephron doesn't need anyone to speak to him. He's heard Abraham, and Abraham knows this. And he says to Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city, hear this response. No, my Lord. Okay, he's, now he's putting himself down. Abraham is to be honored. Hear me. I give you the field. I give you the cave that is in it. All right, he's going to go even beyond the ask of Abraham. Though it's possible that he kind of got the idea that it's important to have the field with the cave, right? Because future generations, you don't want to trespass through to try to get to your burial place. So it's very important. It's the cave with the land attached to it that will settle it generationally. So I'm giving this to you. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you, bury your dead. There's two options here. Either Ephron meant it, I'm giving it to you, right? Or, though he offered it, what was really understood is, I'm honoring you before everyone, I've offered it to you, but I do still expect you to purchase it, okay? (laughs) Okay. Kind of like when you've done something for someone with an expectation you'd be paid. And then when they come to pay you, you politely are like, oh, it's okay. Just, you know, I'm just happy to serve. But then you know that they're going to offer again and you will receive it this time. right? It's kind of, it, kind of similar to that, only in a, in a much bigger cultural type of situation. Because you have an honoring type of situation where really you're just honoring one another. But there are clear expectations of this back and forth. I tend to think it's more of the second one there in terms of options, and I think we'll see that. Abraham's reply in verse 12, again, Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. Notice it didn't even say Hittites at this point. There is something very significant here. He is putting himself under the people of the land, recognizing that it's God's promise that's going before him. that's amazing and he bows before them but if you will hear me i give the price of the field accept it from me that i may bury my dead there now, we know Abraham won't take it free. We know that. We already saw that displayed when the king of Sodom tried to give him all of the goods. And he said, I will take nothing, right? It's only what God has given to me. And so we know that that's his heart. And we know that that's his stand. And he makes it clear. I will purchase. And of course, and this is where I think I see, you see a bit of Ephron's heart, um, which we were guessing at earlier. He answers Abraham, my Lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What's that between me and you, right? Bury your dead. So it's, it's kind of like he's honoring Abraham. You know, relationally, what, the money's not important relationally. Relationally, what's important is me and you. You know, what's, it, what's land worth 400 shekels between us? So I mean, he's naming the price for a reason, culturally. And what does Abraham do? He doesn't even hesitate. Verse 16 tells us, he listened to Ephron, he weighed out the silver he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, that was the price named, he was naming the price, 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current of the merchant's. One fun fact to think about as you picture Abraham just whipping out 400 shekels of silver, right? You're like, where did he get this? And of course, we know that he was wealthy. We know he had much. But I, I, I kind of like the, the fun speculate. You know, back in chapter 20, verse 16, do you remember that? When uh, w- the second issue with Sarah, Abimelech actually paid Abraham 1,000 shekels of silver as a vindication for having taken Sarah. Wouldn't it be cool? If 400 of that thousand went to buy the field, I just, who knows? I don't know. Maybe. Um, but he pays the 400. And so now the back and the fourth has ended. And the story now concludes from verses 17 and following. Um, for the first time in his life, Abraham has a possession in the land, and he will bury his wife. We will find generations coming back to this cave. They will be buried. It becomes very significant in the story. Of course, those who came out of Egypt wonder, where did that cave come from? They have the answer. We see something that's going on here, but then we get to ponder, though, why an entire chapter on this, right, especially when God is not even mentioned in the story? Except that Abraham is a prince of God among the Hittites. Right, the God who's been so active throughout Abraham's life, speaking to him, sending angels to talk, or coming down himself, he appears to be simply silent in the story. And in many ways, that's how death comes upon us. Feels like that, like the intrusion of death has forced God out. We can feel alone left in our grief and our sadness, but Abraham was never alone. Never. And God was never not involved in the story. Double negative. Never not involved because God is intimately involved in every detail that takes place. Remember back in Genesis 14 when Abraham garnered his men and he took off after uh, the, the, the kings who had taken Lot captive? you Remember that? It's just the actions of Abraham. This is what Abraham does. And he goes and he gets his men and he goes and he fights and he's victorious and he brings them all back. And you're like, wow, Abraham, God is not mentioned in that story until Melchizedek comes. And Melchizedek blesses God. Melchizedek is the one who actually looks back on that victory and states clearly that it was God who had delivered his enemies into his hands, right? In the same way here, it's God. Who cares for Sarah. It's God who cares where she will be buried because Sarah belongs to God and Abraham belongs to God. Remember uh, remember what uh, Hebrews 11.11 said about Sarah? It said, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age. And we're like, well, why or how? The author of Hebrews says, since she considered him faithful who had promised. At the end of it all, Sarah knew that no matter how ridiculous God's promise might seem, right, even through her laughter and even through all the struggles, it is the faithfulness of God that we cling to. Sarah clung to the faithfulness of God. We don't cling to our own faithfulness. We cling to his faithfulness. And the faithful God of Sarah is caring for her even here in this story. Do you have eyes to see? It's the faithful God who cares about Abraham and his own grief and his own loss, the reality of the decisions that are before him. The faithful God is with him. The faithful God is the one who's stirring and moving and securing a place that will become the place of burial. God is faithful. To the promise. Because Abraham's decision to bury Sarah right there really was an act of faith. That's one of the things that we need to see, that he buried Sarah in faith. He purchased and buried in the land, not so that he would be together with Sarah someday, right? Not in a tomb but knowing that the act of faith, that God is going to fulfill his promise, and God is going to bring his people back, in the land has a greater purpose. But really, he, he buys that in, in hope of the promise, but in hope of a greater promise. Don't miss this. Because Hebrews 11 says this, from verse 13. Talking about Abraham, and Sarah, and Enoch, and all those before These all died in faith, having not received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, because he has prepared for them a city. He has prepared for them something greater. Abraham bought that plot knowing that it was ultimately about something greater. He buried in faith, trusting that he was living towards something greater. you know what, brothers and sisters, we have a more sure hope than Abraham had, more certain because the story will be fulfilled and the promises will be kept and they will lead us to the place where God comes in the flesh in the person of his son where all of God's promises find their yes and he will walk on this earth and experience the pain of death and he too will weep over the reality of death. He will weep with his dear friends. Even though he knew he was going to raise Lazarus, even though he had purpose, he weeps with those who are grieving. He is moved with compassion. And he told Martha the truth. Ultimately, that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Because he would hang on a cross For sin and for sinners, he would take on the weight and the reality of death. He would be buried in a tomb, in a cave, in the land of promise, a freshly cut tomb. But that tomb would not hold him. After three days, he would burst forth, conquer sin and death and Satan, and he is alive and it is through faith and his death and his resurrection that we have a greater homeland that we have hope for. And it's now being prepared for us. There is hope beyond life and death. And God has given us his spirit as a comforter, the comforter, to be with us in our hurt and grief in death. And his spirit is in us interceding where we don't even know how. And the Spirit is crying out, Abba, Father, even as we cry out in the face of death and the loss of loved ones, alas, or oh, my dear, we who have died with Christ, we know that our lives are hidden in him, with God in him. And like Abraham and Sarah, we are sojourners awaiting a greater land. Brothers and sisters, every time we bury a loved one, it is an act of faith. That thought was like making my mind do a 180. Every time we bury a loved one, it is an act of faith. Because we declare that God is faithful to his word and that it's true and that there is life beyond the here and the now, and that God is good in all things, in life and in death, and we will trust his leading and his promises, even in the face of what feels overwhelming or confusing, even in the midst of all of the hard and frustrating decisions, he's with us and he cares, and he cares even about those little decisions. It's the same in our grief. We grieve as an act Of faith. In the West, where we are are taught to to numb our, our pain or to run away from suffering or grief, it is like the intruding enemy. It is not. It is God's gift, and we grieve as an act of faith, being reminded every time we grieve and are reminded of those we miss and we hurt, and it rises up. We get to declare afresh what we believe, And the hope that is before us. The hope of the mending of all things broken. And so we are free to grieve, brothers and sisters. But not as those without hope. Because the faithful God has gone before us. The God of Sarah. Faithful in life and faithful in death. Right? The God of, put your name in there. The God of Jake and Heather. The God of, he has gone before you right now. His promises are sure. And we get to be a means of healing and hope in the lives of other grieving brothers and sisters. We don't want to miss that. We don't want to hide our grief. We don't want to tuck it away. We don't, don't keep it to just be a personal affair. It is... It is deeply personal, but it is one that we are are called to draw out and, and to grieve and to allow others to bear our burdens with us and to grieve together as a people. And God actually uses that as a means of the healing of our own grief. As we walk away from here, I hope you will remember. There's three key things that I hope that you will remember as we think about God's faithfulness to Abraham. As we think about the hope that was before him, first, grief is indeed a gift of God. It's not an invading enemy. It is the channel through which we receive God's grace and his love and his care and the care of others. It's also a means for the healing of our hurts or our disappointments. And so we grieve with weeping and we grieve with hope and we grieve together and we grieve uh, with my Bible and a cup of coffee. We know that there is grace in the journey of grief and for the difficult decisions that death presents to us. Maybe consider sharing in your care group something of your own journey with grief over the years. Pray for one another. Second, remember that God is faithful to his promises to the very end. He is faithful to his promises. Even where it doesn't seem like he's active, he's active. We see that on display. Even when things don't look like we imagine them to look, he is intimately involved in the big and the small decisions of life. Even where you're having to haggle over the details. Third, the hope of resurrection frees us to grieve well and to live life forward, not stuck in the past of our hurts or regrets. And that's where, that's where the, the, the pieces, the lies that can connect into grief can grab us. That, well, you failed here. You weren't good. You this, you that, or just the disappointments. They failed me. They, they. Those hurt pieces, those are real. We can get trapped in those things and we can start to to believe in in the lies and allow them to just twist us down and to just live backwards. And yet the hope of resurrection frees us to grieve and to live forwards, to trust the one we follow, not ourselves, for those that we love, those that we've lost, because of the promise of His coming in the greater land where we will abide in His presence forever. Let us walk in that hope, brothers and sisters, in the truth of the gospel and the comfort of his spirit. As we walk together, as we laugh together, as we welcome babies together, as we grieve together, as we celebrate the ins and the outs of life together, may we see our faithful God and the truth of his gospel on display for the glory of his name. Let's pray.